You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott, and welcome back to yet another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My next guest is an international rock icon. He is the leader and founder of one of the greatest rock bands of our generation. Nikki Six of Motley Crue and 6AM will be joining us in just a moment. 40 years in the making, 150 million records sold. They're headlining their stadium tour coming up. Nikki's about to release his new memoir, The First 21. Help me to welcome one of the greatest icons of our generation and an old friend of mine, Nikki Six of Motley Crue, coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out, at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, welcome to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Welcoming my great friend, old friend, Mr. Nikki Six of Motley Crue. How are you, my brother? Hey man, what's going on? What do you mean, old friend? Well, old <laughs> friend in the sense that I haven't seen you since COVID. So I think the last time I actually saw you was your wedding, um, which was probably yeah. God. When was that? Now, six years ago, seven years ago? Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a while. It's and, been a while. And you, you know, for people that don't know, you introduced uh, me and my wife to each other and. Um, life's been great ever since. Which talk about fate, by the way, Nikki, it was such a crazy moment, right? I was just sitting with Courtney. It was a random moment. I was like, you guys should meet. I'm on, I'm sitting next to her out in New York. And before you know it, you guys met in LA. You end up getting married. I'm sitting at the wedding, pinching myself, thinking, what an incredible moment. Your beautiful daughter, Ruby. Amazing, right? I'm reading the book. By the way, the book yeah. is amazing. Um, and, uh, and I felt like a small little footnote in the book when I was reading it. Cause the first page mentions Courtney and Ruby. And I'm like, wow, you know what? If I had a, a teeny bit to do with something as a footnote of the story, I'm so yeah. happy because you're one of my favorite people. And, uh, I'm so happy to see you in person here, sort of, but we'll have to do this truly in person coming up. So by the way, it's been a, a busy week for you. You've got the book coming out. You've got the greatest hits coming out. This hopefully yeah. will be a four-time view uh, bestseller because you have three other New York Times bestsellers. So take me back to the beginning, if you don't mind. Like you're in Wyoming right now, by the way. Uh, and uh, no, I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm in California. We we sold our house oh, okay. uh, here in Los sold all of our cars, and sold all of our furniture, and kept the the stuff that was really important to us. Uh, well, we shipped it up to Wyoming, and some stuff we still have um in storage here like you know musical gear and stuff like that that i i don't need to have 40 guitars in wyoming <laughs> but um you know it's what moving up to wyoming was something really great for me and my wife and also for how we wanted to raise our daughter i had a few years before uh we'd been talking about getting pregnant had been talking to some other parents 
and they were uh, telling me about their 12, 13 year old kids and that they were buying bulletproof backpacks. And, um, you know, at the time there was like all this crazy stuff. There's like earthquakes and fires and school shootings and fentanyl overdoses. And it was just getting so intense. We kind of started a conversation about uh, kind of a getaway place. And we, we looked, you know, all over the place for that idea. And uh, then the pandemic came. We figured we would do something after the stadium tour, which was supposed to be two years ago. So, you know, while while we were on lockdown of COVID, we kind of started like just, you know, looking and seeing what was out there. And we looked at Idaho and Montana and, and been to Nashville on the set for the dirt. Um, the two guys in my band live in Nashville, but I'd spent a little bit of time in Nashville uh, on the set. So anyway, long story made short, it, Nashville was too far. One place there was nothing to do. And Courtney came up with this idea of, of, uh, of Wyoming and we started looking around and then it ended up in Jackson Hole. And uh, it was one of the greatest things we've, you know, we've, we've done. We got the change of season. We got, uh, we were outside, we, we were fishing, we're hiking, we're skiing, we're uh, just experiencing a different life than being in the city. And I can always go to the city uh, when I need it. Uh, like need to do work or like band rehearsal start in May in Los Angeles. So I'll be down here for a month, but it was the silence of, you know, we can't even see a house from where we live. We're mm. on top of this butte. And it, it was that silence that reminded me of being a young boy in Idaho and the, the dream, you know, dream discovering, you know, T-Rex and deep purple and Elton John and, you know, all this stuff, wings and, and, and the way bands looked and the way, you know, the whole package, like it got me. And then the storytellers, the Bukowskis, the Burroughs, the Bernie Toppins, the Ian Hunters. And, uh, and I started like connecting all these things that I loved. Like I loved music. I loved melody. I loved storytelling. I loved the whole vibe and like, what was my dream of a perfect rock and roll band? And I used to, you know, write it out and draw it out and all a lot of stuff that a lot of people have done, whether they end up being musicians or in your business or that guy's business or in that woman's business, somewhere in your first 21 years, you're like, this is like what I want to get into. This is what I, I want to do. And I, I wanted to, really talk about that. Um, and then what do we do with that? In my case, I took a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles, California, uh, which ended up being, I mean, there's a holiday, Saints of Los Angeles named after the band. There's a, a star on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, we've got our long history of being from Los Angeles, California, but there was, there's a small part of me a real part of me um, that, you know, is from, from the country mm. and this is a perfect fit. And Wyoming allowed me time to start to think. And that's where the idea for the first 21 came from. Yeah. Talk to me about your upbringing, right? Because the book really focuses on life pre Motley. So we talk about, you talk about sister and London and your life, yeah. even getting into music and how you were raised. So talk to me a little bit about your mom and dad and stuff that you discovered, Nikki, about your dad later on when you were digging deep about your family heritage with this book. 
lot of people said to me uh, recently, wow, if you knew some of the stuff about your dad, you have some of the messaging and you had a different empathetic way of looking at your family, maybe you wouldn't have written Shout at the Devil or Bastard or Livewire or some of these songs. Um, you know, nobody will ever know if that's true or not. Uh, I definitely am not the type of uh, lyricist or songwriter that goes, um, hey, let's write a song about that. I mean, it's like that has to mean something to me. You, you know, it has to be an experience that I had, whether it's negative or positive or what I think of something. So a lot of the, the stuff that I write is coming from a place inside of me. And, and I'm proud of that. I don't want to be a, a type of songwriter that just writes to fit in with the genre. And this is what's popular this week, Nikki. So go write that. You know, I just would rather, you know, live and die by my own sword. And finding out that my dad, my mom told me many, many times, even all the way up until when she, uh, right before she passed, uh, things about my dad that weren't 100% true. You know, the story I got was um, I was born. She wanted to call me. She had a different name. She wanted to call me Michael or Russell. Thank God I didn't get Russell. <laughs> Russell right. Six. <laughs> um, but no, I, um, that's the next book. That's the next book by Russell Six. Yeah. Um, podcast by Russell Six, <laughs> aka Frank Ferrana, aka Nikki Six. You know, um, you know, my mom just said my dad bolted, and I had a sister who was born with Down syndrome, and they took her from my mom, and um. And then, you know, she was a victim and you hear this stuff about your father as a male. Um, I don't want to be anything like that kind of a guy. And that's why I changed my name when I was 21 years old. It was originally a stage name, but then it was a decision. Mm. And um, this is why I co-wrote the book with my former self, Frank Ferrana. Is a book is by Frank Ferrana and Nikki Six, and even have these hats made up i don't know if you can see oh yeah it. yeah of course yeah who the hell is frank ferrana and we did a whole thing because who the hell is frank ferrana i'll, I'll tell you just he's you scott he's um everybody that ever had an idea to dream and went for it and that was kind of the whole idea of the book and not in this book i i didn't want to I didn't want to be one of those uh, memoir autobiographies that is like, you know, I was born and the next day I was selling out Madison Square Garden and I'm the greatest in all on the whole planet. Right. Well, initially this book actually started out as like a finance book, right? And at some point yeah. you kind of made the decision to pivot and write yeah. about life pre-Motley. So how did that yeah. decision come about? Because I'm actually glad that you wrote this book because I love this book. Well, I mean, one of my... Well, the thing that really breaks my heart is um, when I see people that have worked as hard as I've worked, and, you know, this includes athletes and actors and models and, you know, the list goes on, race car drivers, uh, entrepreneurs, they, they, we work their whole, they have a moment in their first 21 years and they're like, this is what I'm going to do. And they work their ass off and with luck and with talent, um, they, they make it. And then they have like two big hit movies or two hit albums or 
you know, this happens and they don't know how to manage their money. And then they end up in a situation where they have to do things that's um, undignified. Uh, it's like, you know, seeing a band do a Geico commercial is like not my idea if it was the band I worked with that I would want for them. It's <laughs> right. something they have to do because they have to pay the bills or they need the exposure. Right. What you want to do is to be able to manage your money so that you can withstand the hills. Uh, well, you know, the hills you're going to accumulate and the valleys you're going to not make anything. So how can you level that out so you can have in my case, like a 40 year career. Mm. I think that's important more than look how rich I am. It's like, look how I manage this. So I could take care of my family, still be an artist. I could write books. I could do side bands. I could take time off when I needed time to recharge. So that was kind of the idea behind the finance book. And then I was saying, that's not very sexy. Like, right, you know, maybe we'll do that in 10 years or something. Yeah. And I was sitting, we have a lot of property up in Wyoming. We're very fortunate, the place that we found. And uh, I was sitting out in the back, like 20 acres overlooking this gulch that went down and uh, ramped up over the Grand Tetons. And um, I was just in awe. And literally there was a huge uh, elk, bull elk standing with his arms, paws, whatever you call them, <laughs> on the front of this rock. So his chest was up, his head was back. He looked majestic. It looked like Mutual of Omaha. Incredible. I was like staring at him and I'm sitting on this rock and I'm staring at the mountain. And I know on the other side of the mountain is Idaho. And, you know, Scott, I just went, um, shit, where did everybody go? <laughs> And, and it was like weird. It was haunting. Um, I, I, I'm constantly like documenting stuff, you know, whether it's with a camera or whatever. So I ran inside and I wrote this little short couplet thing. And um, it, 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 I, I, what was it? It was uh, uh, to my friends out there. It's not you that got lost. It's just once I started flying, I forgot how to stop. And I, I realized, you know, I went to Los Angeles when I was 17 years old with the dream I worked my ass off. I worked a thousand dead end jobs just to pay for, you know, bass strings and rehearsal space and posters to put up. So we could, you know, get people to the clubs and everything everybody else ever did that, that went to a big city with a dream. Um, and uh, once it started going, like, you know, I was in contact with my family, but kind of lost contact with like, you know, your first girlfriend, your second girlfriend, your, sure. your best friend, your, your high school friends, and maybe you would see him at a gig, but it, it, and I was like, I, I want to reach back and connect with all these people. So it was through the connective conversations that they helped tell the story, which um, reveals a, a pretty much the American dream. By the way, was it cathartic to go back and speak to all these people that used to grow up with your ex-girlfriend, your friend in high school? I know there's a lot of references and and I want to actually take it back to that point. But talk to me about how the, the book was almost therapy for you in a way, Nikki. I mean, it, it was therapy to to be talking. I mean, I'll give you this like this cool story. It's actually not even in the book. Um, I feel like I should have put it in the book, but it just really didn't have a place. So it's an exclusive. Yeah. It, it's exclusive for you right here. <laughs> right. So my first girlfriend's name was Susie Maddox. I was like about 13 years old. Uh, my grandfather and I post these 
post. I, I, we printed these photos in the book because I wanted people to see the transformation, you know, that, that a lot of us go through, you know, like there's some point where we're just like riding around on like stingrays and we're like pimple faced boys staring at girls. And one day, like you kind of like come into your own and, and that, that coming of age time I thought was important. So like there's photos of me and Susie and I got like a horrible haircut yeah, I and love these the hair. glasses where you see that photo with yeah. the glasses. Yeah. I thought I looked like Elvis. <laughs> I like mean, a- but honestly, in retrospect, I, I definitely looked like a serial killer. <laughs> but, um, you know, finding Susie and talking to her and uh, my co-writer, Alex, he did some detective work. And um, he called me up and says, hey, I found Susie, changed her name. She got married and she lives in this specific place. And uh, there's no socials, no nothing. There's a landline. I found a landline. Wow. (laughs) I said, call it. So he calls and lady answers and he says, hi, uh, my name's Alex. I'm 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 co-writing a book about Frank Ferrana. Um, and she goes, I remember, I remember Frank and he goes, great. You know, would you mind talking to me? And goes, no, no, I'd love to, you know, whatever happened to Frank. I remember, you know, after we broke up, he moved to Seattle and, um, and stuff. And he goes, well, you know, he lives in Wyoming with his family, his wife and family. And she was like, that's nice, you know, and, and said, um, you know, what did, uh, where, what is, what did Frank do for like a living? And he goes, well, I mean, he like tours with his band and she's like, well, Frank's in a band. <laughs> I mean, I know he always loved music, but he's in a band. He goes, what band? And goes, um, Motley Crue. And he said it was like dead silent. And she goes, <laughs> what? <laughs> and said, I had a Motley Crue album in my hand once and I looked at the photo of the band and I thought well that looks like my first boyfriend and looked down and it said Nikki Six didn't say Frank Ferrana you know it was fun because you know when we talked she told me she told her husband her husband's like no way and then she told her her sons I guess her sons were going to the stadium tour and it's like that was mom's boyfriend (laughs) like all of a sudden mom is like you know it was it was so fun it was so innocent the dream um, of doing something is like right there. There's the moment. And I had no bad experiences reaching back to friends and, um, you know, like my friends, Alan Weeks and Bubba and back in Jerome, we were just kids. You know, we were starting to smoke a little weed and have remember, I remember sitting with my friend Bubba and uh, listening to uh, Edgar Witter group. Uh, they only come out at night and we were like staring at these like guys that looked like girls with platform boots. And me and Bubba were like, how can we get a pair of those boots? I mean, we're, we only had one stops stoplight. Can you imagine if these two knuckleheads come walking down the street in platform boots in Jerome, Idaho? So I had to leave. I had to leave. I went to Seattle. Um, man, did Seattle change me forever. 
But even scene. before that, I was saying, Nikki, you discovered all these great things about your mother. Like your mother had people like Richard Pryor that she yeah. was dating. And who would have thought at the time you were probably just like this guy, Richard, kept coming over the house. I think he's a comedian. He might be an actor. I don't even know what he does. And so later on to find out that your mom was around all these iconic people and, mm -hmm. and how you got into music was so fascinating when I really dove deep into the book. You know, that that was kind of a fun time for me to, um, you know, the way that we did this book was the last book, I wrote the whole book. It took me two and a half years. And I enjoy writing books, but I did have the time that I, we have a two-year-old, you know, there's just no way I wanted to spend two and a half years writing a book. So I, when I found Alex, Alex writes very much like me and we're very like-minded. So what we did is we we did the first 21 years, top to bottom, four times, combined the manuscripts, found tint posts in there. And it would be like Susie Maddox, first girlfriend, Alan Weeks, best friend at 13 years old. You know, Rick Van Zant, my best friend in Seattle, who is a big influence. Oh, Richard Pryor. And, and like Alex is like, you were like with Richard Pryor in like <laughs> 1964. And I said, you know what's beautiful is um, I didn't know anything about interracial relationships. I, I didn't, what does that even mean mm -hmm. to a kid, right? This guy, Richard, would come over and he would spend time with me. And, he, and, and there wasn't really a male figure in my life, my grandfather. But when I was with my mom, the guys kind of came and went. And Richard was one of the guys that really stuck out. And he spent time with me and he, he joked around with me and would play pranks with me. And um, I always really, you know, appreciated that. And, and then it was years later that I remember talking to my mom and she's like, you know, you were too young, but, you know, we couldn't go to like me and Richard and you couldn't like go to a restaurant together. It's like, it was not, it would be a, it would be a scene or at least a lot of weird looks. Remember it was 1964. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't even make sense now. No, when you think about it, it's so crazy to think that even, right? Like what, what planet is yeah, that? You know, yeah. so um, I, I got to experience something in a beautiful way with Richard. And then years later, I remember being in Jerome and, and, and getting a little older as I became a teenager. Richard Pryor was God. I mean, he's the guy. Still. I mean, all these other guys will look to Richard Pryor and go, he he was a god. He broke down the barriers. He was a madman. He was funny as hell. And uh, if that felt good to like have had that experience. And I also kind of felt like some, you know, a little bit of pride about my mom. Like my mom didn't judge by anything other than who, who you were. My mom was a, her own kettle of fish or can of worms or whatever you, <laughs> what other country saying you want to throw in there. Um, you know, but uh, in that in that perspective, uh, that was a pretty cool thing. It's mm, incredible. And talk to me about like your first experience with music, obviously seeing T-Rex, Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Aerosmith, yeah. Kiss, all your childhood idols. I mean, when did you first get into it? I think it was in Mexico that you got your first guitar with three strings. Um, well, I um, got my first guitar in Seattle. In Seattle, but, but sorry. Okay. Kind of, kind of, there's a relation there for sure. Um, I had outgrown Jerome, Idaho, you know, 4,000 people, kid that like 
looking at the New York Dolls first album cover and going, I, that's what I want to do. Can I look like that and write lyrics like that and have pop melodies like that and have it punch you in the face like Black Sabbath? Like that's my brain, right? Yeah. yeah. So I went to Seattle and I found like my tribe, my like-minded teenagers that love the same and i was getting turned on to music then too by them mm. you know and so you know uh i went to seattle because i'd outgrown jerome and was starting to get into you know that kind of teenage trouble and that kind of stuff my grandparents didn't really know what to do so i went to see my mom and my mom was with this guy ramon and ramon had this uh, uh guitar in the corner which i I never really paid attention to it. What I paid attention to was they were cranking Sly and the Family Stone, Led Zeppelin, Olivia Newton-John, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, like Bowie. You, you know, I'm huge speakers. And I'm like, this really beats living in a trailer with two like car speakers, like up to my ears, you know, so I could listen to the local Boise radio station. Um <clears throat> And I had, <clears throat> as I told you, always been documenting everything and writing everything down. And by then I was even getting weirder and weirder where everything was getting documented. Every single thing I saw, short story, short story, couplet, sentence, uh, song title. Like I've always had this thing, especially because of guys like Bukowski and stuff. Um, I, I don't really like, you know, bland song titles. I like Dr. Feelgood, mm. Shout at the Devil, you know, songs that, you know, sick love songs, songs that the title draws you in before you even get a chance. Looks like and those are chapter titles, right. right? It's like, right. That's the same thing. Um, and um, he, he gave me the guitar and was like, you know, if you move your finger here and, and pluck that, that that's like a note. And then if you move it, it gives you a different note. I mean, he didn't really know that about guitar. It wasn't like a great guitar player or anything. And so guitar only had three strings, right. one string less than a bass. So why was I drawn to bass? Right. I mean, that's interesting. I was playing notes. And I'll never forget, Scott, moving my finger. Like I got like my bass here, you know, whatever. And I'd yeah. like, and I would just be like, and I would start reading my words. And then I went. And as I started reading and my the tonality of my voice changed. Mm. And all of a sudden, I was like, this is how I'm going to tell my story. This is my calling. Yeah. This is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. This. Oh, now I get T-Rex. Oh, now, of course. Then you had to learn to play. And when you saw um, bands like the Dolls and Johnny Thunders and stuff like that, were you like, these are guys that I want to emulate? I mean, these this is my this is my music. Obviously, you said you were listening to like Sly Stone and all other kinds of music, Nikki, but ultimately you gravitated towards T-Rex, towards the Dolls, towards stuff yes. that Aerosmith, obviously early Aerosmith, some of the greatest mm -hmm. rock records ever. So I mean, what made you sort of gravitate towards that kind of music? And, and I want to talk to you from that point up until, you know, the Sunset Strip and and how you started to meet Blackie Lawless and Sister and uh -huh. London and all that stuff. Well, you know, to me, uh, you know, what, what's great about being young is uh, unless somebody puts 
them on you on your creativity there's kind of no rules so my uncle don zimmerman who was married to uh my mom's sister so uh, my uncle dotted and sharon um he was the president of capital records which meant nothing to me i don't even know what that meant uh but he would hear from my grandparents how much i was into music and he would send me wings and he would send me the Beatles and Steve Miller. He would send me all these Bob Seger, all these records, as I was also getting into other records from friends and stuff. And what I, I could tell you is because nobody, there was no instrument in our house. There was no, um, uh, we didn't have a stereo. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had something in my bedroom at our double wide which was fantastic. But again, it was like, Hey, can you turn that down? Because like, I got to go to work at five in the morning. And I was like, it was like my environment, but I wasn't drawn to the dolls. And, uh, and that was like my thing, or I wasn't drawn to super tramp. And that was my thing. I was like, listen, what the dolls are doing. Mm look what they kind of look like. I like, they looked like they were freaks, but the beat the shit out of you, right? which like Aerosmith, they were like maybe my gateway drug to Aerosmith, which yeah. is like the ultimate. That's my favorite band of all time. Always will be definitely. Um, but like, listen to like these melodies on band on the run and look at these lyrics from like this band. So you know, as, as I got older, it started to be like, I want to be a fist in your face, like Sabbath, mm. but I want to have that, that boogie, that, that sexiness of T-Rex, but I want to have that outrageous image. Um, but I want it to be cohesive and, you know, cheap tricked for me was like, there it is. One of the greatest bands ever. No question. So right I, there it is. I mean, yeah, I I probably you know, I I can't think of a band that was more influential on me as a songwriter than Cheap Trick. Yeah, definitely. When I listen back to the first record, I hear so much of Cheap Trick. Obviously, that Too Fast for Love. There's incredible references there, and, and my favorite band of all time too. Um, right. So Nikki, talk to me a little bit about how you met Blackie. You know, was the pre Motley days London sister meeting Blackie Lawless the Sunset Strip for you at that point? Were those great memories for you all the way leading up to Motley? And then we'll talk about, you know, obviously the book and everything that you have going on this week with everything coming out. I mean, being in Los Angeles, California was um, an eye opener. Um, This is a a place, a city that was a buzz going down on the strip. I remember this like in 1976. I remember buying my 1976 Thunderbird at a, a used guitar store, even though it was 1976. It was still, it was like, I don't know how much it was, a couple hundred dollars. And, um, you know, auditioning for bands a lot, Scott, which was a big thing in, um, in Los Angeles, especially. I'm sure it was in other cities too. Like I know Twisted Sister was a huge, Huge, cover huge. band yeah and that led into their career there was a million cover bands in los angeles california as long as you could play donna summer and led zeppelin and uh you know whatever holiday right. like you know and you kind of kind of looked like you're in a band like you could get the gig and you could make like a living yeah and i was yeah. starving to death man i was like living on couches 
I had never formally learned my instrument enough to go, oh, this is a Hall and Oates song. So I'm going to play it just like Hall and Oates. I go, this is a Hall and Oates song. This is badass. Like, let's, and I would play it my style, mm. you know, cheap trick style, <laughs> sex pistol style, ACDC style. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm going, I'm giving it some balls, man. And they go, song don't need balls. It needs to be played like the record. So I could never fit in with the cover band uh, world. And every time I would go, I would say, well, you know, okay, I get it that I'm, you know, not the guy to play cold as ice, exactly cold as ice, but Hey, I got, I got an album's worth of original material. And I remember hearing literally the words, I don't know why they called me kid, probably because these guys were 25 and I was 20 and they seemed like, you know, ancient. They said, Hey kid, there's no money in original music. And, and I, I remember leaving that audition and thinking, why is this guy talking about money? Mm. Why is this guy not talking about songwriting or about music? About so I just started forming my own bands and started playing and I was putting together people. And I, I became a band leader by accident. I became the spokesman, the the, the person who I was the manager, I was the agent, I was the guy to arrange the photo shoots, I was the guy that came up with the logo, you know, all these little different weird bands, and, and hanging out on the strip, and I met Blackie, um, Blackie hanging out, and Blackie took a liking to me, like a younger brother, and I had uh, met Lizzie Gray, and Dane Rage, and we became like the three amigos, and the three of us were you know, putting music together and writing music. And we hadn't done anything yet. And Blackie needed a bass player, a, uh, another guitar player and a drummer. And um, we went and we auditioned for Blackie. And now remember, it's Blackie's band, sure, not sure. Nikki's band. It's Blackie's band. Blackie's the songwriter. Blackie's the boss. Totally fine. You got to, you know, give it to the guy. He's super talented and he's done amazing stuff. So um, we got the gig. We rehearsed. I remember being like, this is it. Look at look at our singer. He's a demon. He's a monster. He's a rock star. Look at my guitar player, Lizzie. He's a freak. Look at Dane. He's like a monster god drummer. I mean, I'm a little ratty mess myself. I think we're going to be the biggest band in the world. That's it. Call my grandparents back at the double wide. Hey, just FYI going to be playing stadiums next week you know all <laughs> young and stuff and um went to a studio blackie had some great songs they had this song called mr cool mm. still i there's been times in my life i was like god maybe we should cover that song so good have you ever heard it no i never heard it was, was oh it a wasp god. song or did it come later though? yeah i don't think he ever recorded uh, it in wasp just mm. look it up blackie lotus yeah. mr cool yeah definitely so um we went to a recording studio and none of us had ever been in a recording studio except for Blackie. He was probably five years older than us. Um, and man, we, we, we sucked. I mean, we sucked, not Blackie. And he fired us. Wow. And who would have thought? So, and then he went on to, you know, form his own stuff. So that was the beginning of London. And at one point, London, we had Nigel Benjamin who had, replaced Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople. So it was then Mott for two records. Then he did the British Lions. This guy had a five octave mm. voice. He was 
looked like a rock star. He was from England and he joined London. And we were coming up right behind Quiet Riot. It was Van Halen came, left, blew everyone's mind, changed music forever. Then you had Quiet Riot uh, with Randy Rhodes. They're like the biggest band uh, and, and rightfully so. And they have two deals in Japan, but nobody wanted to sign them from what I remember in Los Angeles because they didn't like London look like the Knack, yeah, you know, or the yeah. Plimsolls or the Flock of Seagulls or who, whatever was in Go-Go's at that time. Um, and record companies are short-minded in a lot of cases. They're like, well, this is what's popular. We got to make our year-end billing, blah, 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 blah. So maybe if we would have cut our hair done some hand claps we might have got a record deal but we weren't and when the record companies passed <clears throat> which is a whole other story yeah, some other yeah. time we'll, we'll talk about that i went to band rehearsal and i said look i got great news and i got um, a little bit of bad news okay what's the great news we're the same band we still look cool we got great songs we got a stage set we got a huge following and Nigel goes, well, just give me the bad news. I go, you know, the record company passed on us, but it doesn't really matter because, but he goes, in that case, I quit. That heartbreak was also probably one of the hugest strokes of luck that I ever had because I was already writing music that would end up being a lot of the Too Fast for Love because I wanted the band to be more, more aggressive and Nigel wanted the band to be more, uh, softer mm. and uh we were not getting along at all and um when he left i was stuck with these songs that i was writing and we tried a little bit more to to get london back up but we could never recover from nigel's loss and uh or leaving and that was the three you know then i changed my name legally to nikki six and three months later, for Motley Crue. And the rest is 150 million records uh, sold. So definitely yeah. uh, your uncle probably regretted not signing you at this point. But He told me that. He <laughs> yeah. told me because he, he didn't sign London and he didn't sign Motley Crue. And he, years later was like, I've worked with everybody from the Beatles on. And uh, there you were living in my house, <laughs> writing songs. There you were annoying me first thing in the morning hey can i call paul mccartney or whatever the, <laughs> the the weird teenage thing that i thought it was all about um and uh and and you know but you know what we kind of talk about this a little bit it's show business definitely it's not show family yeah. so how does how does he go into the board meeting being the president and go okay listen guys um i'm gonna sign my nephew and they're okay, fantastic. Um, he's in a rock band that dress like girls and they sound like T-Rex, but they got a little bit of Queen and Bowie in there. And the guy in the back goes, uh, excuse me, president, nobody's signing bands like that. Unless they sound like Flock of Seagulls. And so we were not, I wasn't going to get a favor. It's a business. Um, but somebody didn't have the, the vision to see that music was changing and what was coming. Um, I think we had a lot to do with the change, but we were not totally, you know, responsible for that. There was just a change in the environment. Kids were bored. 
definitely kids were bored i mean you know you listen back to some of that music then i guess we would call it new wave and you uh you know you know it wasn't that bad but it wasn't scratching an itch either Mm -hmm. well we will definitely have to pick this up to do part two of this but october 22nd by the way the 6am hits record comes out the book is coming out any day now uh, I, and, and this is a great week for you because you got the single, you got the book, the stadium tour, which we didn't even get into. But we will definitely pick this up to do part two, Nikki. It's so great to see you. I miss you. I hope that I get to hang with you in person again. It, I think six, seven years is way over the <laughs> way over. The we'll see you on the stadium tour. We're out there. A hundred percent. And thank you for coming on. Love you. Love to Courtney, you know, Ruby. Thanks, I can't wait to meet Ruby and uh, I'll see you real soon for sure. OK, buddy. Thanks, okay. man. See you soon. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Well, that was great. Such an old friend, uh, old time friend, I should say. And I, I actually wish we had two hours. I, initially, I thought we had a little more time. So in the middle, I had to kind of skip over everything. And I didn't really get into much of the Motley history as I wanted to. But the first 21 is out any day now. In fact, when you listen to this, I'm sure the book will be out. The Greatest Hits Package, 6 a.m. is out. Nikki Six, one of the greats. Uh, Thanks for joining. You're listening to Scott Lips, Spin Magazine's Lip Service, and I'll see you next week.